Welcome to the Sum of It All Short Reads podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague, Mark Alcorn, from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring a series of articles on topics that matter to us and have implications for teaching and learning math. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. Today, we're talking about our final short read, Positioning Multilingual Learners for Success in Mathematics by NCSM and TODOS. And Audrey, the title of this article does not have any wasted words. And you and I have put in enough conference proposals to know that I am a real a person that appreciates short <laughs> titles because I am famous for long titles. <laughs> so that said, let's look at this well-written title for this article, Positioning Multilingual Learners for Success in Mathematics. Audrey, I just think uh, that is just a beautiful title. Uh, I like how it starts with the verb of positioning. Um, that, that already makes me think about um, where we need to go with our learners. And you know that term multilingual, I think is, is a term that uh, you and I have been using now for a little while. And it's something that um, is a term that's it's being used more and more instead of EL or English language learner or ELL. Um, and it, it really, I, I think is a healthy change um, from those other terms. Uh, I don't know about you, Audrey, but sometimes when I'm in the midst of the working conversations, um, there, there, there started to become this mantra of my ELs are not able to do something. And, and there's just a lot of deficit uh, thinking that I think was getting wrapped up into some of the other language we're using. So I really like the healthy positioning of the word uh, multilingual and that asset space. What are you thinking about that? I, I agree with you, Mark. I especially appreciate that we're not looking at what they can't do yet, like that they might not be fluent in English yet, but instead we're, we're valuing the fact that they have uh, more than one language that they are able to communicate in and at varying stages perhaps of fluency, but um, to look at it instead as that asset um, you know, approach. And I appreciate, you know, they quoted, one of the quotes in the article says, everyone can learn from multilingual learners complex knowledge and experiences when we position languages and cultures as valuable assets. And I think that's really the switch is saying like, we can look up and acknowledge that um, knowing more than one language is an asset, right? right. That helps us yeah. in a global economy in the world that we live in now, um, where we have the ability to communicate across continents um, easily. Um, and that, that the cultures that people bring um, and their backgrounds are valuable assets, that that brings a new lens, that that brings um, diversity, which helps us solve complex problems. So I, th I think there's, there's a lot wrapped up in that, in that one word, um, mm -hmm. but that's why it's so powerful to think about it that way. Uh, agreed. And a little bit further down on that same first page, Audrey, um, there's a quote that really just stopped me in my tracks. Multilingual learners should be intellectual leaders in their classrooms. I love that quote. Mm -hmm. um, and you know what I would like to challenge us all and our listeners with? Does that quote shock you? Like, does it give you pause? I said it stopped me in my tracks. Why does it stop me in my tracks? Why should something like a statement around our students being intellectual learners, why does that give us pause? Why do, why do I love that quote so much? I, I sort of almost want to push back on myself around that. So uh, I think that's important to think about. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, and the other thing, Audrey, on that same page um, is the idea of developing productive beliefs about multilingual learners. So if that quote does stop us in our tracks, how could we continue to develop these productive beliefs? And uh, the authors talk about this idea of learning from practice. Like as we continue to do the work, how can we make sure that, or how are we aware even that our beliefs are shifting? And what I've been wondering about this, Audrey, is how do we make this connection more explicit with the type of things that we're doing with our students and that they are improving conditions for our students, but they're also shifting our beliefs. I'm wondering how that, how we can make that more explicit and, and really how to make this all very practical as well, Audrey, because I think that's something you and I really try to do on these podcasts is like, we can talk a lot, but we got to make sure this, this can be, go to something practical. I think that's a great point, Mark, um, and that we have to think about those tangible changes to our languages and our practices that actually move the words from just being words to beliefs. So I have a, a, an example of that, I think, and that's on the fifth bullet on the very front page where it talks about we acknowledge that. Um, I feel like these are belief statements, right? They're, they're saying like, here's where we're starting this article from. Um, here's what we believe to be true. And the fifth one down where it says, every mathematics teacher is a language teacher. Um, I used to completely disagree with, 100% disagreed with. Um, you know, as a high school math teacher, I was like, nope, I'm not a language teacher. I'm a math teacher, right? And I wonder, uh, you know, in your perspective, it probably felt more muddled than that as an elementary teacher because you're like, I am sure. both, right? Like right. the right. lines do cross. Mm -hmm. um, but I was like, that's not my job. I have tons of math to teach. They have an English language arts class where they can learn language. If they need additional assistance, they have an English language development class. Like I don't need to be the person doing the language development. And they had strategies they came up with where they were like, here's the 15 minute literacy and language lesson every third period teacher has to get, right? And I'm sitting there looking at these lessons thinking, what a disaster. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know why we're doing them. I don't know what's going on. And it really took the fact that I was forced to do them to get to a place where I realized that there was actually connection to the mathematics that I was teaching. Um, and so sometimes it's actions that happen before beliefs. Sometimes it's actions that you're not wild about that someone else <laughs> says, come on this block with me. I think you're going to learn something along the way. Um, but it, it took me from being someone who felt just totally against the idea, felt totally ill-equipped um, to feeling like I had some practical strategies that I was learning alongside with my students. And so, um, you know, I, I still struggle with it because my training in my credential program was not around how to develop language uh, with students in the classroom, um, but there's been a lot of learning since then, I guess, um, which has helped change beliefs. So, yeah, I think it's really helpful for you to share that story, Audrey. Uh, I can think of a few other instances. The same thing happened to me is just having that that shift in practice first before that change in beliefs uh, is is something that we have to be on the lookout for and be open to. Uh, in the next section of the article. It, it has a heading that says themes from research. And I know sometimes when I was in the classroom, I felt like researchers were really disconnected from the work I was doing. So I didn't really pay much attention to it. Um, I think there's a lot more access uh, nowadays for teachers to uh, read about research that has very practical implications. A researcher I would recommend if you haven't had a chance to hear her speak or read any of her writing is Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez. And, um, she has a quote um, in this particular uh, 
article and it goes like this, uh, teaching strategies will not address some of the larger issues that multilingual learners and their families encounter. And what this makes me think about is traditionally, I think what I've done is I've thought about, well, I either have my teaching strategies to improve or the world needs to improve, to improve conditions for students that are underserved. So I kind of looked at that as just two different choices rather than thinking about the injustices that could be happening at my school, the injustices that could be happening in my classroom that I am responsible for. Um, so I think that um, I appreciate the work of Dr. Gutierrez and others that have really pressed us to consider there is influence that we have in front of us day to day with our students. And we cannot, we don't have the time and our students don't have the time for us to wait for some uh, national or global change to happen before our students get what they need. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's important for us to note and to be reminded that we can be the change that um, inside of our classrooms, we are changing society uh, if we change the culture of our classrooms. So um, and our schools. So when we get to some of the really practical steps, one of the things the article mentioned um, was that students can learn academic language and mathematics concepts simultaneously. Um, and the math language routines from Stanford uh, are one way that we've seen really practical strategies for, um, for doing that, right? For putting both language development and mathematics kind of at all the way amped up if you're thinking about your soundboard there, um, mm -hmm. making sure that both are the focus of your lesson. Um, and I know they're embedded in some of the newer curriculums that are out there, but they're also um, instructional strategies you can try with any curriculum you might use uh, that might help that. Um, but one of the one of the things that I, I've noticed is that they don't do something that our colleagues who work heavily with language development often say, which is, you got to develop vocabulary first with students who are learning language before you do the mathematics. So um, what are you thinking about that, Mark, now that you've read this and, and thought about that some more? Yeah, I, I, I think it's so important for us to support our students in scaffolding and support with vocabulary. Um, the thing I would say about that, Audrey, is, is what vocabulary? To what purpose? And I think that uh, we would agree that um, we are interested in each and every student having access and not just access, but um, the, the experience of engaging in inquiry. And at times in inquiry, uh, the, the actual terminology of mathematics doesn't come in the beginning of the lesson. And so I think that what our students, all of our students need and our multilingual leader, learners need is vocabulary that is gonna support them engaging in inquiry. So there's still vocabulary support, absolutely. The, the, the support to engage in the inquiry versus say my lessons on perimeter. If I'm having all my students explore perimeter, the word perimeter would have no meaning at the beginning of that lesson. And so um, I think sometimes, uh, Audrey, to your point, I think sometimes when we have conversations, we, we sort of never quite hear each other on a point like this. So I think it's important for us to think about Yes, language, but what language and when? Mm. I, I really appreciate you untangling that a bit for us. Uh, another word in here that is somewhat tangled for me is translanguaging, um, which they describe as the ability to communicate in between languages to facilitate mm. meaning making. 
And I've heard my own children do this and they don't even realize they're doing it when they're, you know, speaking Spanish and English at the same time. Um, and they substitute in words like to me as a someone who learned English as my primary first language um, and still struggles to learn other languages. Um, I can I can hear when they insert a different word, but they don't recognize it themselves. Like they don't recognize that they've switched from one language to another back again, um, which is really interesting um, because of uh, the cultural um, implications of that with immigrant families, my in-laws um, being reprimanded for speaking Spanish, um, mm -hmm. for being then reprimanded for speaking Spanglish. I mean, they made up a word for it and saying that that's not appropriate. You know, and I've heard that the the derogatory nature in which we call out people for doing translanguaging as opposed to looking at it and saying like, wait a second, like they're facilitating meaning making and they're using language to do that. And yes, it's more than one language, but what's wrong with that, right? Like there's, there's meaning making and communication happening. And so I think that there's um, some more work to be done there and kind of untangling that as well. And how we, again, view any language as an asset and the meaning making as the most important piece um, and how they use language to do that. I'm also um, really interested in um, some of the things that might have pushed your buttons in this article, Mark, and things that you might have thought about um, that kind of stopped you in your tracks or you thought might be worth other readers considering. Do you have anything that you might throw out there for us to consider? Actually, I do. <laughs> There's a, a quote on page three that was a button pusher for me, for sure, Audrey. Um, at the top of page three, they talk about, uh, well, I'll just read the quote, large scale assessments as accountability tools for multilingual learners may be misleading about informing schools about the learning capabilities of students. Um, one of the things that I have a great worry around, Audrey, is how screeners and other large-scale assessments are used to determine what kids are capable of doing. In other words, this whole notion of your previous performance predicting your future competence in mathematics. And I'm a believer in assessment. I, I believe that there's many formative ways along the way for us to, to see how students are accessing the information and giving just-in-time support. Um, but I'm very concerned, and I appreciate the authors pointing this out, that these, these assessments can be very misleading, and we can have kids as young, young as kindergarten in typed, in, uh, being given types of screeners in mathematics that are really determining their trajectory of their learning for years to come. And so I think we need to be very cautious about this and really think about how it might be working against us starting from strengths. Mm, I think that's a great point. You know, one of the things that really struck me in this article was the, the importance placed on families and communities. And I'd like to spend just a couple minutes unpacking that with you, Mark, because um, I thought there were some really profound things and they're towards the end of the article. And so if your stamina and reading has like diminished in any respect, it's worth putting down and coming back to. Oh, for um, sure. Because this idea of moving from parent as caregiver to parent as an intellectual to parent as a teacher, I mean, that's just a really... Uh, profound change of um, how we look at families and parents and communities. What did you think about, about that? I love that continuum. I think we are so stuck on that first, uh, first level, if you will, that you mentioned, Audrey, which is caregivers. Um, we, we as educators so many times talk down to our communities and 
and just expect them to follow instructions as their as if they are students in our classrooms and um, and expect them to do what we think they should do with their children and that caregiver type of a label. That next one is so beautiful, intellectuals, like to, to move to intellectuals and then the next one, teachers. And I even made it, I, I started to think, Audrey, that like that word teachers may even need to have some explanation to it because it doesn't say tutors. I think we put our community into tutor mode uh, oftentimes with mathematics. We expect our, our parents to uh, reteach our lessons for us if they weren't taught adequately. So um, I, I just think that that's a really wonderful way to position a potential continuum. Yeah, I also noticed that they talk about some really specific steps um, on, the, on the bottom of page four and for how you might engage families and communities um, and learn from them. And one of them was to, um, to consider how we acknowledge the parents' ways of knowing and doing mathematics. And the researchers found that when we do that, that families and parents felt more confident both in their interactions with teachers, but also how they felt empowered to participate with the academic development of their children. And so I, I recognize that, you know, talking to a, a principal uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and we were working with the teachers on ratios and proportions activity. And I was asking people to share out how they had done the problem. And the principal was almost kind of embarrassed to say, well, that's not how I learned it when I learned it in my home country. And I was like, well, let's share it. How did you do it? Right. And in having her share her work in front of these math teachers, you could see how she changed her view of her way of knowing and doing mathematics as the teachers gave her positive reinforcement of like, that's cool. That's mm -hmm. amazing. Instead of saying, sorry, that's not the way we do it here. Right. right. Which is, I think right. what we typically do, which is like, that's great that you do it that way in your other country. Here in the United States, we're going to ask you to do it this way. And that's a really backwards way of mm -hmm. looking at it instead of like saying we value mm -hmm. the way you've made sense of mathematics and I can learn something from that. Right. Um, and so just watching how she changed her demeanor and doing that, I can imagine that if we do the same thing with our parents and our community members, how much um, how much the we could change the nature and uh, the relationships we have with parents from that caregiver place to that intellectual place, and then eventually to a real partnership in teaching um, with, their, with their children. Oh, for sure, for sure, Audrey. Uh, and in, right after that section that you referred to on families and communities, um, equally helpful to make sure you get to in this article is, is some steps at the end that are implementation suggestions. And one of them connects very much to what you were just talking about, Audrey, and I really like how it's written. It says, learn from families. And there's like a semicolon after that. I just, I love starting it with that statement. Learn from families, respect what they do, know and value and leverage the funds of knowledge in mathematics. And your example is just a perfect one around that with students bringing their mathematics from another country and, and valuing that. Um, the one other one I'll mention, Audrey, that I thought was really nice was the idea of interviewing multilingual learners to provide greater depth and detail of their thinking. It really made me connect to cognitively guided instruction, CGI, as an approach. It's taught me so much about the value of student inter interviews and how as we th sit with a student and uh, especially in my experience at an elementary level, um, I think that is super underutilized as an opportunity. Yes, we can't do it with every kid every day, but just working that in 
continues the relationship between teacher and student as, as sitting there just in a setting, talking about mathematics together. Um, I think that is, is a really special opportunity that we, we really need to take more advantage of. Great point, Mark. You know, the, the list at the end of steps that you can take, um, some of them were things that I, I immediately were, was drawn to and others I wasn't. Um, and so my encouragement is um, in both doing the things that we're drawn to and find easy and interesting and also pushing ourselves to consider maybe the things that feel a little bit further outside of our, our normal patterns of behavior. And so to that end, um, you know, I don't always lead discussions with various stakeholders around the, leadership, the, the literature. I don't often look at policies and practices in my specific school or my specific area and say, how do I change that? Um, but maybe I need to be pushed to do the, some of those things. So even though the spaces around, you know, the, hey, yeah, let's do more discussion in my class, that might be something that you're really drawn to. Um, and you might feel like, hey, I can do that. Do that and push yourself to say, what are one of these things that might be beyond my normal um, comfort zone to really be pushed to advocacy for, um, for our students, our multilingual learners. That's great advice, Audrey. Well, folks, thank you for joining us in this episode and this season. We're taking a short break before season five. Be sure to visit www.sdcoe.net slash math and click on the podcast page for information and updates. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on your professional learning journey.